The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two tub-thumpers of trivia. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. And I've put the cart ahead of the horse this time around with that introduction because it gives away what we're here to do, which is spend way too much time talking about Chumbawamba's Tub Thumping, <laughs> which turned 25 this year. I you can't say it with a straight face. No. I remember those dog days of the summer of 1977. 19, 19, oh, 19, can you imagine if this song was 50 <laughs> years old? Uh, I remember the dog days of summer of 97 when our nation turned its hopeful eyes across the pond hoping once more our forebears in the united kingdom might help heal a divided nation through the gift of song truly a better time (laughs) we're the waning days of cool britannia oasis could do no wrong the spice girls taught us to love again and a bunch of peace punks from northern england gave us a resolutely working class anthem for the ages I have nothing else to say about this song. Because I was 10 when this came out, and this is a dumb song for people who like dumb things. This is, I'm being mean, but I was 10. This is a 10-year-old song. (laughs) You know what I mean by that? It's just loud and obnoxious, and by halfway through, you have all the parts, and you can just start yelling along. I don't think I had the record. I don't think I listened. I, I haven't listened to this song while doing this, but I have, well, I will get into why I have a whole level of respect for this band. What about you? Yeah, I was sort of perfectly positioned as an overly serious 10-year-old to be supremely annoyed by this song. I figured you would go one extreme or the other. There would be no middle ground with you. No, yeah, the whole soccer stadium chantness of it all didn't really really play in my world. Um, In your world of immaculate four-part Beach Boys (laughs) harmonies. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) A a song that you could just bang like a pie plate to didn't really, yeah, it wasn't really my thing. But I just want to level with listeners right now. This was a song that Heigl has been pushing to do for, I think, months, and Mm -hmm. I've been really skeptical 
But after he gamely agreed to do not just Margaritaville, but also American Pie, I figured I owed this to him. But, mm-hmm. you know, the song, having listened to it voluntarily for probably the first time in my life in <laughs> preparation for this episode, it does have a certain amount of charm, I have to admit. Uh, not to mention a very nice message. It's all about endurance and resilience, whether it's about overcoming major life obstacles or just getting so drunk that you can't <laughs> enter your own home. The song, it makes me think of the Frankie Boyle bit. He's this Scottish comedian, and he said that the most Scottish thing that he'd ever seen was uh, he saw a guy peeing on a front door to a house, and then he took out his keys and opened the door <laughs> and went inside. So that was the most <sighs> Scottish thing he'd ever seen. It makes me think of this song for some reason. Yeah. Plus, this is all courtesy of a bunch of anti-corporate rebel rousers who have marched to the beat of their own tub since day one, standing up for animal rights, gay rights, feminism, and taking a stand against classism. The writer Magdalene Taylor, writing for Mail Magazine, describes tub thumping as, quote, a Trojan horse designed to covertly deliver anarcho-communism to the masses. And uh, yeah, I got to say, you were absolutely right. This story is fascinating, and I knew exactly none of it, and I'm so excited to kick it off. We're an anarcho-syndicalist collective. <laughs> Commune. All decisions have to be put to a, t- uh, uh, what are these, to a committee vote, which then has to and be ratified a by a weekly meeting, <laughs> which then has to be ratified by a two-thirds majority. Yeah, I, you know, I've read like Emma Goldman and some of that anarchist theory, and, and I can tell you that... Anyone who thinks anarchists are into chaos is extremely wrong. Anarchists are extremely into order and rules. Anyway, from Chumbawamba's origins as a deeply principled set of anarchists in Northeast England to the controversy they courted in the press to the still raging debate as to whether this is a great one-hit wonder or one of the most annoying songs of all time, here is everything you didn't know about tub thumping. Can't even say it with a straight face. Still never will be able to. Uh, To understand part of what makes the success of this song so hilarious, you need to know a little bit about the music scene that the group emerged from when they played their first show in January of 82. That's right. They had been a band for 15 years when this song came out. Most people probably have a passing familiarity with the Sex Pistols and Anarchy in the UK and The Clash, but I would wager a guess that unless you've spent a lot of time in the punk rock trenches, you aren't fully aware of the sub-subgenre of anarcho-punk. I was not. I gathered as much. Anarcho-punk or peace-punk, which is, I believe, the preferred term. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, an umbrella under which a very loose conglomeration of second-ish wave British punk bands fall. I say second-ish because the godfather, the granny, the wellspring, the watershed from which 90% of these bands fall is crass. Um, That's the name of the band. He's not making a judgment on <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think they quality. took it. I think they actually took that name from Ziggy Stardust. The kids was just crass. Oh. Oh, yeah. I believe that is where they got the name from. Punks uh, love Ziggy. I always they sure that. do. Yeah. Bauhaus covered uh, Ziggy as well. But um, they were contemporaries of the Sex Pistols. And the Penny Rambeau, who's one of the main founders, was like the same age as, as all of these guys. So they heard all this music, but rather than sign a record contract, they moved into this big ramshackle commune called the Dial House, which is this enormous farmhouse. And they, you know, vegetarian passive non-resistance but they were also like they get weird but some of the music is very abrasive and they were this is crass 
crass yeah yeah yeah. and the and it's like a, a, a tremendous breath of fresh air into the punk scene at this point because when you think of what they call 77 punk like uk 77 you think of these peacock ludicrous safety pins through their nose plaid and- bondage p- trousers crass wore all black all the time uh, and would like very minimal stage shows and they were all about like peaceful protest and they did a lot of this direct action stuff like anti-vivisection uh, mm-hmm. protests, anti-animal cruelty. Anyway, these are all bands who had been influenced by the Sex Pistols and the Clash, but in particular the case of the Clash felt they'd sold out their ideals, didn't take all this stuff far enough. So they were invested in being very political and in a lot of cases, you you get sort of the underpinnings of what becomes crust punk because they were kind of also into like British heavy metal at the time. So all of that is the scene from which Chumbawamba emerges. Um, I impossible I to say. With I know I can't not laugh when you say Chumbawamba. I, I crass. It is. I mean, if you grew up listening to punk rock, you saw they have this truly amazing graphic design logo that's like an Ouroboros snake and an anarchy A and a peace symbol. It's just one of the, it's like the black flag and the dead Kennedys and the misfits logo. It's one of the great triumphs of punk graphic design and crass. They, they could basically do no wrong. And so Chumbawamba are of a piece with them. They come out of this sort of decaying steel mill town of Burnley, Lancashire. They were immediately a band of part. There's a tremendous oral history of this scene called The Day the Country Died, which is a subhuman song uh, written by a UK journalist and punk rocker named Ian Glasper and Chumbawamba guitarist Alan Boff Whaley <laughs> told Ian that they were they were not interested in being your bog standard punk rockers. He said, quote, we were desperate right from the start not to just be four people in a band playing rock and roll music. We were fans of early Frank Zappa and things like that who really tried to challenge their audience with what they did on stage, the way they presented their music, the way they chopped and changed all the time. And like Crass, they embodied this collective commune-esque model of being in a band. They were squatters. A lot of these bands were squatting at the time because you had the the whole bottom had fallen out of the British economy. So a lot of these people had to, like a lot of the landed gentry had like vacated their homes or moved. They couldn't keep up their country homes and all these punks just moved into them. So they were squatting in this big old Victorian house. They were like everybody who came through the house. They were like, can you like bang on a pot in time or like strum? Like you're in the band now. They were raided by the police repeatedly for drugs uh, and once for bomb making equipment. (laughs) Wow. So they were like doing weatherman type stuff or being or or being persecuted for without actually doing that. And at least once they talk about um, they drove a bunch of fellow punks to an animal testing laboratory and broke in and made off with a bunch of uh, beagles and mice. Um, and then they were arrested for it. At once, the police like subsequently caught up with all of them because they were like the getaway drivers. They piled all the people into their band van with all these dogs and mice, and then the police caught up with them later. Um, one of the band members, I think, who sings the "Pissing the Night Away" line, Alice Nutter, whose name is Anne Holden, but she renamed herself after a woman who had been hanged as a witch in the 1600s. Which is again, I'm painting a picture of these people. She told Rolling Stone in 1998. Other band members. Harry and Lou are a couple now, and Lou and Boff had a relationship for a few years. The rest of us shagged each other occasionally. But you get to a point where once you've done it, you've done it, and it's almost out of the way. You don't have to keep doing it. So a cross between a dorm room 
and uh, Fleetwood and Mac, Fleetwood Mac, and a and a rock and roll protest commune, and you've got early Chumbawamba. I mean, you said this a few minutes ago about how people have this misconception of anarchists as being all about chaos, and you're right. It's not that they don't want rules. They don't want government to impose the rules. They exactly. themselves feel the arbiter of a very strict set of rules that everybody has the responsibility of enforcing. And so, relentlessly democratic. And they yeah. t- some of the interviews I've read in this, they talked about it actually being a problem because they would like talk about <laughs> they produced all of this stuff, recorded, produced all of this stuff themselves, and they would like they were like, yeah, it would become a big problem because there's 12 people on the record. They would all be in the mixing room asking for their individual contributions to be louder. <laughs> uh, there's a, a Vice profile from, I don't know, I think like 2014 or something. And there are all these quotes from like eight members of the band basically giving their take on whether or not to sign with EMI, a major label, do a major label deal after being an independent for so long. And it was just so funny, like hearing of these eight very different takes and just yeah. like, wow, it must have been impossible to get anything done. No wonder it took them 15 years to get a song on the charts. <laughs> But yes, Chumbawamba was from the start a lot less sort of doomy than most of their punk peers. Uh, They kind of had a bit of the, you know, Ken Kesey, Mary Prankster energy. By way of a, for instance, another subgenre of punk at this time was Oi! That's how you put Electric (laughs) Avenue style, right? Like Oi? Short for Oi Poloi, which is a pun on Hoi Poloi. Which is uh, uh, it means the unwashed vernacular for exactly the unwashed yeah. the working classes yes yes um, hooligans and so exactly <laughs> yes yes Scottish soccer hooligans etc. Um, so oi, which is you know sort of nominally about working class struggles and culture, this whole genre gave rise to bands and fans that were basically skinheads, and it was very popular. Well, actually, before we go any further, how would you define a skinhead? Well, it, it went through so- different. Styles from the sixties to the eighties. Yeah, dude, this gets so in the weeds about like punk rock stuff. I mean, the whole thing, the whole fashion of it emerges from the working class, right? Because you had short hair because it would get stuck in machinery. You wore big boots because you needed steel toe boots for your industrial, shitty industrial job, right? And so, basically, early oi, um, like Sham sixty nine and Angelic Upstarts and a lot of this stuff is very like. It's pub rock. I mean, it's essentially pub rock with the musical competency dialed down a little bit. And what as happens in, as has happened in the f-ing United States, you get people who are very like, this is England is the like archetypal thing mm. about this. You know, they wore the that documentary yeah, the, or the uh, series yeah, rather. They, they wore they would wear the flight jackets because like there are a lot of the lower class people. Their only ch- choice was going into the military. Like that's where you get like a lot of this discarded you know, military ephemera, um, like the parkas and the flight jackets that are such a part of it. And basically what happens is being very pro-England and being pro-working class metastasizes into being racist. And Mm. that's when you start getting actual white power skinheads. And there's a whole schism in the scene of furiously anti-racist there's actually a group called sharp which is skinheads against racial prejudice and it comes down to the point where they started drilling down into the color of the laces that you tied your boots with meant you were either a white power skinhead or an anti-racist skinhead and there's a lot of overlap because these guys who were living in these council flats or whatever shared a lot of space with people from the caribbean that there was a lot of overlap in 
skinhead music, like actual skins who were into ska. And so you would see yeah. like these dudes in braces, the suspenders, and and these like um uh Fred Papa Perry top. Fred Perry, what's that? Papa Top being an early reggae song from the late 60s was a skinhead anthem. And you know, as you said, it's strange. You've got this social movement with two distinct subsects of it. One is extremely fascinated by, or not fascinated by, uh, passionate about black culture, and the other subsection is extremely racist. Hates it. And yeah. the only thing that you can really tell them apart by are their shoelaces. Yeah, and there's a lot of bands that are still very, I don't know about this, I'm going on a limb here, but it's like if the country music industry in the 50s had clan members in it, because there's wow. like very formative oi bands that became... Like, Screwdriver is the biggest one, and they started out as an oi band and became aggressively racist. And it, it came over to the States about five to ten years later. Like, you really start seeing it in its, in not ten, that's an exaggeration, but it really in the second wave of punk, like, once you start seeing hardcore take over in the early 80s, like the Black Flag and um, Minor Threats wave of punk, you start seeing people being like, oh, we have like skinheads in our scene and it culminates in there's a famous Dead Kennedy song called Nazi Punks F*** Off. Uh, there's your mini history of f***ing skinheads in punk music. Thank you. <laughs> well, Oi was very popular with journalists at the time in the early 80s and one in particular writing for an outlet called Sounds Magazine, a guy by the name of Gary Bushel. And so a young Chumbawamba decided to prank this writer by claiming that they were an oi band that they just made up called Skin Disease, <laughs> which is a great name for a band. It is, yeah. And and this journalist, Bushel, invited them to record a track for a compilation of oi bands that he was putting out. And so they recorded a song in which the only <laughs> lyrics are, I'm thick, repeated 64 <laughs> times. I'm thick, meaning in you know English slang, like basically, I'm stupid. Um which really, when you think about it, is kind of great practice for tub thumping because it just is like a chant. You yeah. Know? yeah, 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 yeah. Uh. So in their pre-Chumbawamba band, they call themselves Chimp Eats Banana. <laughs> um, the drummer, Danbert No Bacon, told Bandcamp earlier this year, we used to do something called a bed gig where we would lay on the stage and wake up and start playing. One time, we had a gig a couple miles away from where we lived, and we decided to walk to it. We had pajamas on and dressing gowns, and the cops stopped us. They thought we escaped from a <laughs> mental institution or something. Uh, and they were apparently somewhat terrifying on the stage. There would be just 10 people in matching t-shirts and asymmetrical haircuts and blindfolds sometimes, who, it must be said, could barely play their own instruments. Yeah. But... You know, an unabashed lack of musical prowess is about where their similarity to the punk scene ended. As we mentioned earlier, they stood apart from punk in Northern England by attempting to integrate themselves into the community rather than sort of standing on the outskirts of society. They distributed pamphlets and food to workers' families, and they even started a theater troupe to perform for minors' children. And they made a point of putting themselves in uncomfortable situations with people who had varying points of view. And this eventually caused them to distance themselves from the, you know, in quotes, punk movement, who they viewed more and more as hardline and humorless. And Boff Whaley of Chumbawamba referred to this as, quote, a process of unlearning some of the insular and antisocial ideas we picked up from an insular and antisocial political movement. 
And in his memoir, Boff talks about Chumbawamba growing frustrated with the punk scene's, quote, stamp soaping culture, which was a habit that they would do where they would basically peel stamps off of letters and wash the ink off of it so that they could reuse them. They just thought it was pointless to, you know, scam the Postal Service rather than just participate in the economy like everybody else. They were really interesting. They were not like, you have to drop out of society. They were like, you know, you can kind of still do your thing and live by certain ideals. And they got tarred and feathered for it, man. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but people really came at them as being sellouts. But as we will discuss, they were very much like, no, we are like, we can, we will participate in this, but we will not at any point compromise what we actually believe in. Which is... And they didn't. Yeah. I mean, it gets back to the old question of, do you change the system from the outside or from within? Yeah. Which is the most effective. And, you know, it kind of remains to be seen. And this whole sentiment was echoed in an insert that was included in a Crass Records 7-inch. Uh, I think it was a 7-inch. And it said, you say you're an anarchist, but you're begging the system for help. You're standing in the dole lines, but you want to be independent. And I think that's kind of their point there. It's like, well... You can't have it both ways here. If you're going to rely on the system for sustenance, then don't try to cheat it. Yeah. Try to change Live it. Live outside of it. And the whole milieu of the time in the 80s, is it's interesting because all the 80s U.S. punks were obsessed with the concept that we would be engulfed in a nuclear war. So there's this whole like world-ending thing. But over in the U.K., I mean, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher was there, Reagan. She was a tremendously mm. conservative person, but she was stamping down all the working-class people. I mean, they nationalized the mining industry in uh, Wales and I believe also Scotland and Ireland. I don't fact check that. But um, yeah, I mean, she was hated by all of these people for this. And so Chumbawamba in particular really glommed onto the miners because they were in the North as the people that they were going to support and the communities that they were going to work within. Um, And the Falklands is the other thing that happens. I mean, the Falklands uh, pointless war which people speculate launched is either a flag-waving power play or an economic jump starter. But there's a famous crass record called Yes, Sir, I Will, where um, and they have a picture of this in the liner notes. It's wild. Prince Charles was meeting with a bunch of Falklands War veterans, including a guy who has been horrifically burned. And uh, Charles, in the fantastically constipated way that the British have of dealing with one another he says well you be a good boy you be a good lad or something and get better like he says something like you better you know you 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 get better get back lad. Out thank you for your service yeah and the guy goes yes sir i will which is you know rightly they were like horrified that this guy who had lost his face in a pointless war was saluting the man who ostensibly sent him there anyway by uh late 1982 crass had released the first chumbawamba songs on vinyl called Three Years Later and Volume 2. They put out these compilations called Bullshit Detector, and they take their name from this Clash song, Garage Land, in which Joe Strummer sings, Back in the Garage with my Bullshit Detector, Carbon Monoxide, Making Sure It's Effective. Um, There's a whole thing about being a garage band, because I think someone had dismissively had written in a review of The Clash, this generation of garage bands should stay in the garage, or something like that. <laughs> um and yeah, it's funny that because these guys later came at the clash. I mean, this is the, the, by what the mid eighties, would you say, early eighties? You'd say around eighty two, eighty three. This is when the clash are opening for the Who and doing like their stadium tours. 
So that's why all these punks were like, oh, you guys have sold out. But they still loved The Clash. I mean, Boff Whaley covered this song, Garage Land, on one of these compilations. Yeah, this whole scene has, as we mentioned earlier, a really strict code of conduct. Chumbawamba got flack for issuing one of their albums on vinyl instead of the much more affordable cassette. And like, mm-hmm. even that was seen as, you know, a Sell bridge out. too far. Yeah. Yeah. Their debut full length, I love this. This is actually the record that I listened to the most while I was researching this. It's called Pictures of Starving Children Sell Records. Not only does Pictures of Starving Children Sell Records sound nothing like tub thumping, it barely sounds like anything else it was contemporaneous with. There's trumpets, there's like tape speed experiments, like samples that are on there, slowed down and sped up. Uh, Boff told MTV in 1997 of the record, we finally got this collection of songs and ideas together, and about two or three weeks before we went to record it, the Live Aid album came out. So we scrapped everything and rewrote the entire album to react against it. They scrapped all of their songs because they were so upset at Live Aid. He said, quote, It was such a big watershed in pop culture and pop history. We felt it deserved some little guy standing up and saying, Look, we have a different point of view going on here. We would have participated, but we would have gone up there and explained why children are starving, not just, hey, send money. And they make a very good point, because isn't Live Aid when uh, Phil Collins took the Concord across the Atlantic to play at both of them? Yeah. Nothing says feed starving children like a millionaire taking a speed of sound jet from one gig to another. And ruining the Led Zeppelin reunion. (laughs) Yes, he sure did. Uh, yeah, skip the Concord and rehearse, Phil. <laughs> um, in 1989, they released a 10-inch that was just acapella re- renditions of English protest songs. Like, the oldest one of these songs is from, like, 1812. I What a perverse move. I mean, talk about just not even... Every day, nowadays, everything is so stage-managed, like, oh, your, your record has to sound like this, and you have to follow up with the producer, blah, blah, blah. They followed one record that was like cracked new wave with an, a, a record that was acapella English Plain protest song, songs. Yeah. And Boff said that this got them banned from uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, which are very influential, very famous punk magazine based in San Francisco. He said uh, they actually sat around and had a meeting about this record and decided it was going too far to have a punk band playing acapella <laughs> folk songs. Um. Boff told The Guardian in 2016 that we didn't make any money for at least 10 years because we played benefit concerts all the time. You know, they released, we talked about the mine workers before, they released songs about the striking mine workers. Uh, They have one called Never Mind the Ballots. That's a whole record about how the voting system is rigged. Um, They released a parody cover of Let It Be that mocked this charity single that was released by The Sun. The Sun is famously like up there with the Daily Mail as like being an extremely conservative, extremely bottom-feeding UK tabloid. And um, the Chumbawamba version of this single was released under the name Scab Aid. All the, <laughs> all the, all the lyrics mock, make fun of The Sun. It charted, and it was featured in NME, the extremely influential British music magazine, before anyone realized it was them. Just across the board subversive. Tremendous stuff. I mean, some of the most successful trolls in UK music history, I would argue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The band was at least able to quit their day jobs by the early 90s, at which point they, like everyone else in the UK at the time, began to fall under the sway of techno music and rave culture. Uh, if you've ever seen 24-Hour Party People... Oh, uh, yeah. Coogan. The, this is... Yeah, this is the... You, <laughs> there's a great part in the trip where uh, Steve Coogan posits that Northern England is more influential than the entirety of Wales. <laughs> and Rob, Rob, <laughs> Rob gets extremely upset at him for suggesting that. But it is interesting because I'm wearing a New Order t-shirt as we talk about this. I mean... I have, and I have a, a Beatles poster behind me. You're also from Northern England. The whole scene that descended from the factory, you know, Joy Division begat New Order. New Order begat the rest of the factory bands as best typified by what? Probably Happy Mondays, right? Yeah. Primal Scream is another big one from this time. So everyone's into techno music and rave culture. And Trumbull responds to this with uh, releases like they had records called Slap from 1990 and Shh 
from 1992 that had a lot of these um, sort of repetitive dance beats and samples. The album Shh was originally intended to be released as Jesus H. Christ. Which, as you can mark. imagine. Yeah, which as you can imagine did not work out for them. Yeah, I think this was like a completely different album that never got released. It was just wall-to-wall uncleared samples and covers right. of the most expensive music you could imagine. It was a total anarchist move. They just stole these iconic songs. They had clips from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Rolling Stones, ABBA, KC and the Sunshine Band, Wings, T-Rex, and Buzzcocks. They even covered Stairway to Heaven. So it was just, <laughs> just the cost of licenses and clearances alone would have made this one of the most expensive albums ever. So it was obviously scrapped. I mean, this would have been, what, like eight years before the Verve were sued into oblivion for the Bittersweet Symphony sample? Yeah, yeah, less. I mean, I think like yeah. one of the, maybe I'm wrong, somebody is going to correct me on this, but I feel like one of the last albums that got away with sort of sampling whatever the hell they wanted was Paul's Boutique, right? Yeah. Beastie Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then people started clamping down on that. Yeah. Uh, tremendous quote from uh, vocalist Dunstan Bruce about this era. Everybody was going to raves. I think what happened, what I found with that movement, it was the first time since punk I felt like I was part of this huge movement and maybe we could actually do something about the state of the world. Looking back, I realized it was only because I was high on ecstasy. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. If you've read um, Our Band Could Be Your Life in the Mud Honey chapter, it's so funny because they talk about the same thing. Mark Arm is like, yeah, you know, like all these Seattle bands, they made this big thing in the press about like all these Seattle bands, like we were like buddies and we go to these gigs and we loved each other so much. And I think what it really was, was there was this wave of really pure MDA that came through <laughs> Seattle at the time. We were all just like loved up on each other, extremely uh, rolling face. I mean, it's Hate Ashbury in the '60s with you know yeah. Owlsley acid. Yep, like White Lightning and yep, all the good, all good music all the comes good drugs. from drugs. Yeah, but at the dawn of the '90s, when Chumbawamba were getting into this kind of Manchester dance club type music, hacienda. Beats and all that. Chumbawamba band member Alice Nutter told Vice that around this time, at the dawn of the 90s, Chumbawamba realized that a new decade required a different political approach. The band was bored with the politics of victimization. The big brother is going to get you line. So instead, they worked on this premise that optimism breeds optimism, which I feel like is the least punk ethos I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. Eh, well, you know. We'll see. <laughs> um, so by the time they go to make this album, Dunstan Bruce told The Guardian that before we went, made this record, I felt we were in a mess. He said we'd become directionless and disparate. So they purposely made a record that doubled down on their sense of Englishness, uh, in particular Northern England. They recorded this record from August 1996 to February 1997 at Woodlands Studio in Castleford, West Yorkshire. Um, I assumed going into this that they had signed with a producer for this record. They did not. They made this the same way they made all of their other ones, which was just in a studio with one dude who later became their bass player, was like still in the fold. Still an insular wrecker. Alice Nutter told the AV Club in 2017, we made tub thumping at a point when people had written us off. We made a really terrible record before it. We felt like our backs were against a wall, and if we were going to continue to exist as a band, we were going to have to pull together and be really tight. We wanted to prove ourselves to ourselves. 
Boff told The Guardian, Tub Thumping was written as a collective, like everything else. We wanted to make a very English album, and the song is about the resilience of ordinary people. They're a group of anarchists. You think they're going to hire a producer? I, yeah, you know, I don't know. Talking to the Guardian back in this Guardian interview, he says, At the time, we lived near a great pub called the Ford Gren in Leeds. Irish, Afro-Caribbean, Asian, white, everyone went there. Our next-door neighbor, who was Irish, would come home drunk every weekend from there and try to get into his house, fall over, and shout for his wife. It was a weekly ritual. Yes, and Chumbawamba drummer Danber Nobacon. Is it no bacon? Uh, is it no bacon? It no I assume, because they're probably uh, vegetarian, right? Right, okay. Which, as you mentioned, is sadly not his real name. Shed a little more light on the situation, which includes where the Danny Boy part of Tub Thumping fits in. Oh, Danny Boy. It's pretty, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's talking to the AV club. Boff was in bed at night with his wife, and they heard the next door neighbor coming home. He was super drunk, making a lot of noise. He's singing Danny Boy, which became a lyric in the song. He goes up to the door. He puts his key in. He falls over, and he gets back up. <laughs> it happened two or three times. He was just so drunk, he kept falling over. Eventually, he went in, and he went to bed, presumably, and fell asleep. It just clicked in Boff's brain when he woke up the next morning. It fit the chorus. Your cousin, Marver, no, Marvin Nobacon. <laughs> You know that new sound you're looking for? Well, here's a guy <laughs> falling down. <laughs> uh, in a different interview, Boff said, we wanted to write a song about this very ordinary sort of sequence of events. Don't know how ordinary it is, but okay. Which is basically that a lot of people have jobs they don't particularly enjoy doing, and they don't have much money or opportunity, but they find ways to enjoy themselves, and they go out and they have a good time, and at the end of it, they'll get up off the floor and go on with life. And they use this vision of the drunk neighbor as a metaphor for the struggles of the middle class held down by the elite, which, sure, I'll go with that. <laughs> why, why not? Yeah. Um, the sweet sounding bridge to the song Pissing the Night Away. Uh, I remember that being like minorly controversial in the States. Like, I, I, I don't think I was allowed to own this uh, because my parents heard that. But did you want it's to? A bit of, maybe. I don't know. I, you know, the first record I ever bought was around this time um, was... Uh, I've told you this before, Eagle Eye Cherry. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Um, and the other one that I, I think, Semisonic, was that around from around this time? No. Semisonic was a couple years later. Uh, anyway, piss, it's, it's wordplay. It's a British pun. Piss is slang for alcohol. It's there, you're on the piss, taking the piss. Uh, so pissing the night away means you are both doing a lot of drinking and urinating. Uh, and in that Lollipop Magazine interview... Boff said, we wanted a lot more of the video to involve toilets, but we were assured that would be a death wish for the video. And the title, which I've always, this is just asinine to me, but the title of the song and the title of the album are different. I, what? Gun to my head. I don't know which one it is. One's Tub Thumper. The other one's Tub Thumping. Whoa. I, I never put that together. What's the name of the song? Now I'm like, what's the name of this this episode? (laughs) I have no idea. Tub Thumping is the song. Tub Thumper is the album. Okay. But it doesn't appear on the cover of the album. It just says Chumbawamba. Tub Thumper at night, sailors delight. (laughs) Tub Thumping at dawn, sailors mourn. That's how you remember that. (laughs) It's it's insane. Anyway, either what those both mean is... um, 
sort of a, a town crier situation, someone who stands on a soapbox on the street corner and shouts about what's wrong with the world. Yeah, the American equivalent is basically going on the stump or political campaigning. In other words, a protester or one who makes noise for a cause, which really points to the true meaning of the song. And this is probably a good time to get into the origin of the band's name, Chumbawamba, <laughs> uh, which you probably should have done earlier. The official explanation is that Chumbawamba is a meaningless string of syllables that sort of rhyme. However, the most common explanation that I've heard is that band member Dan Burt, <laughs> no bacon, outlined uh, a dream, talked about a dream that he had where he needed to pee but he didn't know which door to use in a public toilet because the sign said Chumba and Wumba instead of men and women. Which terrible. I actually had a similar dream once. <laughs> I, bet you I did. did. Yeah, I have a dream. I was, you know, Buckingham Palace, they do tours. I had a dream that I was like on a tour of Buckingham Palace and I really had to go to the bathroom and I was like just wandering through the halls of the palace myself, desperately trying to find the restroom and it was getting really bad. And then. I'm looking for someone to ask where it is. And then I come upon someone and it's the queen. And I didn't know, <laughs> I, and I didn't know how to approach her. Cause there's all this like protocol for how you address the queen and how you don't turn your back on her. And you know, you speak when spoken to and not before, you know, all these things. So I didn't know how to like approach her to ask for the bathroom. And then I woke up. <laughs> you have such, we have very different nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that record has a truly awful cover art. You can yeah. blame a guy named Michael Kalea at Industrial Strength Design in New York City. But it was, again, as with most things, an insular joke for the band. Uh, their sixth studio album, simply titled Anarchy, was released in April 1994. The cover art was a baby being born, which apparently also caused a lot of controversy. But they were like, it's literally, they took it from a children's book, uh, like of like the miracle of birth. Oh, wow. It's gross. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. It's like straight out of the source. Medical textbook. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Boff said, uh, the anarchy baby was just being born on anarchy. So we thought it should be about eight months to a year old with a bit of attitude on Tub Thumper. Horrible <laughs> album cover. I hate it. Um, they wrote about 20 songs for this record and cut it down to 12 for the track list. And then they delivered it to their label, One Little Indian Records, which is founded by a guy in another sort of seminal anarcho-punk band called Flux of Pink Indians, which I've never investigated further. Uh, and the label rejected it. They shot it down. Yeah, I guess they wanted it to be more punk and they refused. And then fate intervened when they got a fax backstage at one of their gigs from EMI, one of the biggest label conglomerates in the world, saying they were interested in picking up the album and giving them a six-figure advance. Yeah, I mean, this is what's so funny to me. I think the prevailing narrative about this that people would think is like, oh, they were this punk band, they sold out, blah, blah, blah. They had this thing done and in the can, and it was rejected. They didn't approach the labels. All the labels came to them. Boff told Glasper, Ian Glasper, in Day the Country Died, we'd already recorded the album, and without any thought about selling a lot of records and all that, we were wondering what to do with it, and we were getting a bit pissed off with it all, to be honest, and some of us had got part-time jobs and stuff. Uh, important context, in 1989, the chums, as I'm going to start calling them, <laughs> old chumly, uh, had been involved with a covers compilation called F*** EMI, for which their contribution was Heartbreak Hotel, a cover of Heartbreak Hotel. <laughs> this would not age well when they signed to EMI in 1997. 
a fellow anarchist punk band called Oi Poloi, taking the inspiration for the genre name of Oi to its logical conclusion. They toured and worked with Chumbawamba, and they released an anti-Chumbawamba EP, which is one of the strangest string of words I've ever said in my life, which is itself a reference on the Chumbawamba album Pictures of Starving Children Sell Records. The Oi Poloi record is called Barefaced Hypocrisy Sells Records. Burn. Yeah. So this is, in, I, I guess one of the big beefs with EMI at this point was that one of their many corporate arms was an arms, man, pun intended, was an arms manufacturer. And Boff told Glasper that by this time, when they were taking the money from EMI, the company had ceased, they had divested themselves from the making of missiles and ballistics and such. So they had a clear conscience about signing with them. Uh, he said, some bloke in Germany had a copy of the recording and really liked it. And then the German EMI got in touch with us and we had a meeting with them and we said, you do know who we are, don't you? <laughs> and we gave them a copy of the f EMI album just to make it clear to them who they were dealing with. But they were still really into us and offered us a hundred thousand pound advance. Okay. First of all, a hundred thousand pound advance. That's ludicrous. I don't understand. I mean, I know this was the height of record label bloat, where it that's is. probably yeah. not a huge advance, but still, for the kind of stuff that they were making, I don't know if they, they were just thinking like, oh, this is kind of like Manchester dance music. Yeah. Maybe we could, yeah, maybe they that They heard was a why. hit. They heard a hit. Um, he said, the biggest argument for signing was that we were in a rut. We had this audience that expected us to do a certain thing. We played to the same people all the time, and we weren't really going anywhere fast. It almost makes sense that it was... EMI Germany because it sounds like a German drinking song. <laughs> I mean, Oktoberfest, the song. Uh, the band wrote on their website's frequently asked question page We signed to EMI Universal not because we've been co opted into the, if you can't beat capitalism, join it school of thought, but because experience had taught us that in a capitalist environment, almost every record company operates on capitalist principles. Our previous record label, One Little Indian, didn't have the evil symbolic significance of EMI, which again was this huge conglomerate. I mean, it was the Beatles label. It was just the, you didn't get any bigger than EMI at this time. But they were completely motivated by profit. Our position was that whoever we signed with would want us not for our ideas, but for the potential profit. So we battled for a contract where we still had autonomy. EMI and Universal didn't offer us the most dosh, which is a British slang for money, but we did get short-term contracts where we still maintained control of everything from the production to the artwork. And they later said they hoped this compromise would help them amplify their music and therefore their message and help them, quote, change the world for the better, which is adorable i know okay. they're so i mean anarchists are idealistic <laughs> very cute um in a piece written for mel magazine legendary producer steve albini expressed skepticism about this approach saying quote there's the argument that broadly appealing commercial music can smuggle progressive ideas into mainstream culture i've always been suspicious of this idea as it's a convenient cover for the more conventional aspirations of making good money and being generally popular Chumbawamba, on the other hand, had made more pop and dance-inflected music within the underground community prior to their big breakthrough hit, and they wear the populist mantle a little more cleanly. Also evidenced by the fact that they didn't make a serious attempt at following up their mainstream success with, you know, Tub Thumping Part 2. Uh, we touched on the same argument in the You Get What You Give episode. 
Steve Albini's narrative about this whole thing is that Chumbawamba were one of a million idealistic bands who thought they could subvert the mainstream only to get used by a major label and then tossed aside for the next big thing. How do you feel about that? What do you think about, you know, trying to make a catchy radio single that has a mildly subversive message in it that could get heard by the most amount of people versus something that's a bit more undiluted, shall we say? I mean, I I think that the any subversion that was lost in the message of the song, they made explicit with their position. Right. And we'll all talk their about this and all their stunts. Yeah, and- exactly. We'll talk about this in a second. But like, if you were paying attention to this band, and I've you know, part of the course for this episode, we did well, every episode. We looked at the Rolling Stone things from the time. We looked at the MTV News thing at the time. As a ten year old, I was not clued into this, but like. At no point did they ever mince words. At no point did right. they ever be like, "Oh, you know, it's like we're anarchists." They were like, "They were like, we are anarchists." Like they, they, you know, Alice Nutter got her head bashed in at a protest outside of one of their shows. Like they were not at any point. You know, you could hear this song and you could be like, "Okay, this is a loud, dumb chant along song." And like, sure, plenty of people did that, obviously, but like. If you did any investigation into them after the fact, you would be getting those ideals. You would be getting shit about miners and dock workers. You would be getting all of this. Like, I understand Albini's position, but like they did walk the walk. You know, yeah. they every single time they were given a microphone, they they were like, support the dock workers, support the sacked dock workers. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a I I gotta give it. To, I have to hand it to them. Um. The band's relationship with their record, uh, all uh, one little Indian records deteriorated further, illustrated by... They, they, you can go on their archived version of their FAQ page. Uh, they have this whole big rant about how their back catalog was being held hostage by the label who, after the success of Tub Thumping, smelled money and were uh, charging what they said exorbitant amounts of money to reissue those records in the States uh, to capitalize on the on the band's success at the time. Uh, which essentially meant that anyone who wanted to find their back records were unable to unless you were getting, like, pricey imports. Upon its release in August of 1997, Tub Thumping was a top 10 hit in the U.S., U.K., Sweden, Norway, Belgium, a number one hit in Canada, Italy, Ireland, and Australia. The record itself hit number three on the Billboard 200 and sold more than 3.2 million copies landing at number 17 on the American tally of the top selling albums of 1997. I just, I I don't understand how the song caught on. I mean, I know it's catchy, but I, uh, yeah. Lad culture, right? This is the whole like Glasto, Glasto, lads on holiday, right? Oh yeah. I guess Oasis were starting to take off in the States and blur song. Number two was probably big around this time. Right. We loved loudish. What we perceived as loudish British men yelling at us. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I mean, song two is just, it's just Mm -hmm. uh, Tame and Auburn going woohoo over and over again. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Half the reviews for Tub Thumping, including one on CNN of all places, recognized the song for what it was, an anthem for the working class, whereas the other half thought it was a dumb yet catchy drinking song. And Boff Whaley later said, Tub Thumping became known to some purely as a drinking song, which is fair enough, because if nothing else, it didn't belong to an elite group of musicians. It belonged to people. People at football matches, people singing along to the radio as they drove, people at parties drinking too much whiskey and tripping over kitchen chairs, people like me. (laughs) And Alice Nutter expressed similar sentiments a little more simply in 1997. She said, it's not a song for the rich, really. It's all about surviving the daily grind, but doing it with dignity. Yeah, and again, this band did not shy away from starting The month this song came out, Alice Nutter was quoted in Melody Maker, probably number two, the the ABC to the NBC of NME in the British music press, saying, nothing can change the fact that we like it when cops get killed, which is... That's a hell of a pull quote. Hot 
hot potato in 2022. Imagine 1997. Naturally, there was an uproar in the press. The band was condemned by the Police Federation of England and Wales, which, like, what were they going to do? Come after them with clubs? They don't even have guns over there. On horseback. They have bobbies. (laughs) 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 Just thinking, like, the scene in Get Back where they can't even get the Beatles to stop playing guitar. Or Jackass, where they're, like, like, come into the, then they're like, oh, oi, you stop. The NYPD comes in, shoots you 41 times for reaching for your wallet, drop a bomb on you from a helicopter. The British cops are like, that's not very nice now, is it? Uh, Disappointed. (laughs) Conject all these Latin verbs on the the blackboard. (laughs) I was going to cut this segment, but no, I'm not losing that joke. Uh, they resisted pressure to issue an apology. Uh, she clarified her comments by saying, if you're working class, the police won't protect you. When you hear about them, it's in the context of abusing people, miscarriages of justice. Show me where the lie is. Then, appearing on Letterman in 1997, they interpolated the phrase free Mumia Abu Jamal into the performance of their song. Apparently, they also did this on Leno. Yeah, or, uh, yeah, on The Tonight Show. They did that again on... Two, the two biggest late night opportunities for bands. They put free Mumia Abu Jamal into their song. Uh, for those of you who didn't grow up listening to Rage Against the Machine, Mumia Abu Jamal <laughs> had been imprisoned a few years prior for a crime he says he was unfairly convicted of killing a police officer. He remains in jail. He was a big cause uh, celebrity, particularly with Rage Against the Machine. He's still incarcerated to this day. I think he was the longest serving, uh, one of the longest serving people on death row until yeah. the sentence was commuted in 2001, I think. And uh, Dunstan Bruce did this incredible interview with Democracy Now! in 2017. Very far-ranging interview. Um, he said the record label got into a big discussion with Letterman's people about whether they could still broadcast it. Uh, and Nutter said, I think, to AV Club that the show actually confronted them. They recorded, you know, as with late night television, they recorded it an hour before it went out. Uh, and the show came to them and said, you can't do that. You have to do another song. You have to do it again. And they said, no, you either use the song or you don't. I mean, I wonder if they just bleeped that part out or I haven't. I didn't look yeah. up. I did Again, I didn't listen to this song. <laughs> that includes the live performances. <laughs> A few months after the double Letterman-Leno kerfuffle, uh, Alice Nutter appeared on Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher in January 1998 and encouraged fans who couldn't afford the record to steal it. This resulted in several music retailers refusing to carry the album, even as it was doing huge numbers. Virgin Records, for example, only pulled the album from their literal shelves instead selling it from behind the counter. Nutter told MTV that same month, quote, he wanted to talk about people stealing a record, which is irrelevant in the scheme of things. What I wanted to talk about was why people shoplift and why in some cases it's absolutely valid. Some people have two houses and two cars and luxuries for far more than themselves. And other people struggle to survive day by day. And Dunstan Bruce told Democracy Now!, all they did was create more interest in the record and in the band. So it sort of backfired on them in a way. It you, we we crucified this band for being a bunch of loudish fools with a annoying one hit song, but all this shit that's been in conversation for the past two three years, police brutality, global in, economic inequality, they were like literally standing, they were tub thumping, mm. 
they were standing on every soapbox made available to them, shouting about it. And we were all like, wow, this song's annoying. Dumb one hit wonder. Uh, a few weeks after that, this is in January, February of 1998. This song has been out for less than six months. Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, John Prescott, attended the Brit Awards, British Grammys, essentially, at a time when the new Labour Party was attempting to surf some of what we called earlier the Cool Britannia. It's a loose term for when in the late 90s, this, you know, Oasis is one of the biggest bands in the world. Blur is huge. This whole notion that the, you know, British culture is cool again, I guess. Right? Yeah, it's it's kind of like 60s Swing in London Part 2. Sure. Yeah, that's good. Um, in the AV Club interview, Dan Burt Norbacon <laughs> tweeted us using the hashtag Chumbawamba singer. I already forgot who he was. Drummer. Chumbawamba drummer. drummer. Tweeted us using the hashtag Chumbawamba drummer Dan Burt Norbacon. Told the AV Club that uh, the band's presence at the Brit Awards was a concession to their label. He said the record company said you have to go. They'll give you a budget and you can do whatever you want with your performance. And this was crucial because at the time the local dock workers union was on strike and they had just done a benefit show for them. So he said they changed the lyrics in the performance of Tub Thumping to new labor sold out the dockers just like they'll sell out the rest of us. Their plan had initially been, had they won, to bring some of these sacked dock workers on stage with them for their acceptance speech. Sadly, they did not win, but during their performance, they also wore jumpsuits emblazoned with phrases like sold out, shift units, and label whore. You know, Kurt Cobain gets all this damn credit for wearing a, a t-shirt that says corporate rock magazines still suck ass or whatever for their Rolling Stone shoot, but this motherfucker never, like played uh, striking lumber union benefits in Olympia, Washington, or wherever the hell Aberdeen. he was from. Ab Aberdeen. Yeah, you know, like, Pearl Jam is honestly who comes to mind. Because, like, Pearl Jam, at the height of their fame, bankrupted themselves practically trying to fight Ticketmaster. There were not that many other big rage. It's rage and Pearl Jam. Like, they were the two big U.S. bands that really took a progressive stance while also becoming millionaires. But at least, you know, at least those guys, again, walked the walk. They didn't just talk the talk. We didn't get to the best part of the story, though. Yeah, sorry. After Chumbawamba's performance, at some point, they noticed that John Prescott, the deputy prime minister, was there, and Dambert Nobacon, who, <laughs> in his own words, was always the one most easily convinced to do a dare, along with Alice Nutter, ran over to his table and threw a bucket of water on him, shouting, this is for the dock workers. It was a bucket of water used to chill the champagne at the tables. Oh, if you need a good. more a more on-the-nose, you know, British monarchy image. Wow. <laughs> so, yes, they doused the deputy prime minister. No bacon was arrested. Though, I guess John Prescott declined to press charges, deriding the incident as a publicity stunt, which, yes, it was. Fair. Uh, Dambert No Bacon was formally charged with criminal damage to Mr. Prescott's suit. <laughs> That's a quote. But then was promptly, quote, decharged. <laughs> Can you imagine if, like, I don't know, Lizzo threw uh, a bucket of ice water on, on like Kamala Harris? <laughs> I mean, actually, at this time, can you imagine if someone threw a bucket of water on Cheney, they'd be black bagged in Guantanamo. They would wake up with electrodes on their testicles. <laughs> well, this would have been Al Gore in 98. 
Okay, so nothing would have happened. Al Gore would have taken it politely. (laughs) But it's worth noting the prime minister was Tony Blair at this point, one of the other architects, architects of the Iraq war. You know, again, like these guys were really ahead of the curve in who they chose to target and the stuff they chose to talk about. Damn it. Chumba, we, we we failed. Chumbawamba didn't fail us. We failed Chumbawamba. Alice Nutter later told the AV Club of the incident, we didn't win a Brit Award, we got drunk, and we felt terrible that the dock workers weren't going to get a voice on national television. Remember, that if they won a Brit, they were going to bring up these fired dock workers to say their piece. So one of the bandmates said, Dan's going to throw water on John Prescott. Should we get him from behind? <laughs> Phrasing. Yes. The reason he was significant is that he used to be a docker, and the dockers had faith that he was going to help them. They felt sold out. I didn't know John this Prescott, Prescott. Used to be a docker. Yeah. yeah. The band put out a statement the morning after the incident saying, quote, If John Prescott, Deputy Prime Minister and Representative of the government, has the nerve to turn up at such events as the Brit Awards in a vain attempt to make labor seem cool and trendy, then he deserves all we can throw at him. This wanton act of aggregate pop is dedicated to single mothers, sack dock workers, people being forced into, quote, workfare, people who will be denied legal aid, students who will be denied the free education that the whole labor front bench benefited from, the homeless, and all the underclass who are now suffering at the hands of the labor government. Damn, that is 25 years later. Jeez. And drummer Dambert Nobacon said the label sent Prescott flowers as an apology, without their consent. Label trying uh, to smooth things over. Yeah, imagine the Spice Girls doing this. Uh, Prescott did get the last laugh uh, when Chumbawamba, spoiler alert, announced they were disbanding in 2012. Prescott uh, tweeted, Chumba who? Uh, and then joked about buying their greatest hit album. But joke's on you, buddy. You got doused with ice water on, on, the, on television. God, yeah, man. Imagine the Spice Girls throwing ice water on somebody. They wouldn't do it. That's the. Mm. So at this point, they were arguably on top of the world. They could have said something about any. Do they ever to go on the record about any political shit other than girl saying girl? No, because we did this whole thing about them being like, like Margaret Thatcher was the pioneer of girl power. Yeah, Jesus Christ! So, Can yeah, you imagine two more diametrically, diametrically opposed? Holy. The band was getting a lot of different offers for ad placements or what have you for the song. Uh, The Rolling Stone profile from the band, uh, 1998, is one of my favorite anecdotes. They mentioned of being approached by Dustin the Turkey, a puppet who appears on Irish television, who wanted to commission a version of Tub Thumping with lyrics about infrastructure repair and fixing the roads. They supposedly turned down $1.5 million from Nike to use this song at a World Cup commercial, although they did talk to Barbara Walters on The View, which I love. What the hell? Okay, wait a minute. (laughs) I think she sings it. I think she, like, gets in on, like, a chant of, I get knocked down. Um, The single best Chumbawamba ad money bit comes from a few years down the line, actually. They were still able to command uh, uh, offers in 2002. General Motors paid them, the actual sum has been lost in the shrouds of history, but somewhere between 70 and 100 grand to use a song called Pass It Along for a Pontiac Vibe television commercial in 2002. Remember the Pontiac Vibe? 
Uh, the band took that money and promptly gave it to the anti-corporate activist groups, Indie Media and CorpWatch, who used the money to launch a disinformation and environmental advocacy campaign against General Motors. Incredible. Uh, in the Democracy Now! interview, Dunstan said, What we found really liberating for us was that we suddenly did find that we had a lot more money because of the money we made from the record. And so we were in a position where we could help a lot of organizations and a lot of community action groups and a lot of people who previously we would have only been able to give a couple of hundred pounds to, we could now give a couple of thousand pounds to instead. The use of this song in video games, uh, mostly sports games, the movie Home Alone 3... <laughs> Home Alone 3, everyone. Anyone? <laughs> and licensed to a dancing gorilla toy, which I did Google an actual toy that does, in fact, sing tub thumping. You can still find it on eBay. Sold via Walmart, I think, right? Yeah. All, a, a sort of uh, big mouth Billy Bass kind of guy. <laughs> um, they, spent, they, they put all that money to activist groups. God love them. And as a result, they were hit up by basically every insane organization in the world and were quickly relieved of basically all their money. <laughs> Dunstan Bruce, the front man who quit the group in 2004 to start a film company, had a Kickstarter for a documentary that he made called I Get Knocked Down, the untold story of Chumbawamba, parentheses, the song you've danced to more than you care to remember. <laughs> uh, or how to survive as a political pop star keep your friends self-respect and sense of humor when everyone hates you some really great uh slogans for this movie they knew the slot that they occupied yeah. i have to give them credit for you know yeah i mean the description for this movie is a modern day cautionary tale chumbawamba vocalist destin bruce's account of the roller coaster ride that took them from diy squat gigs to madison square garden and back again a personal exploration of what happens when a political pop band accidentally have a worldwide <laughs> smash and given their 15 minutes of fame uh, I think at long last, this film was shown at South by earlier this year. Yeah. So good on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mentioned earlier in the Rolling Stone profile, they talk about Nutter was injured, missed a few dates from the European tour because she was in a march uh, protesting the detainment of two political prisoners in Italy. Outside of the venue they were playing, the police showed up and there was a mini riot and she was injured and missed some of their shows. Another funny part, remember the protest song record? Uh, they played uh, New York's Jingle Ball, which is put on every holiday season by the massively influential and iHeart owns Z100 station at MSG, Madison Square Garden. They were on this bill alongside Celine Dion and Aerosmith uh, for, I guess, respectively, My Heart Will Go On and I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. What a weird year. <laughs> yeah, right. Probably also uh, Backstreet's Back was a big was another one from this year. Uh, Cherry Pop and Daddies, I want to say. Yeah, let's just do, let's just do a quick lightning round. Who were Chumbawamba's peers well, on the Candle pop charts? Candle in the ninety seven, obviously. Jewel, you were meant for me slash Foolish Games, which mm -hmm. I they're the same song to me. Uh, I'll be missing you, Puff Daddy and Faith Evans. Mm -hmm. Unbreak my heart. That's a great mm -hmm. song. Yeah. Uh, can nobody hold me down? Puff Daddy featuring Maze. Uh, I believe I can fly. Yep. 
by he who should not be named. <laughs> uh, don't let go. Parentheses love by En Vogue. Return of the Mac. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. How do I live? I was more of a blue guy by Leanne Rhymes, but that's oh, a good, I love that's a good How one. do I live? Yeah, that's good. Uh, wannabe Spice Girls. Quit playing games with my heart. Backstreet Boys. Okay, well, let's quit playing games. We should have done Mbop. I still have notes pulled for Mbop. Maybe we'll do Mbop next week. Uh, that's too many '90s songs. Uh, for you, <laughs> I will by Monica. Yeah, uh, sure. You make me wanna. Bitch by Meredith Brooks. Oh, oh yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, semi charmed life. Third eye blind. Barely breathing. Duncan Sheik. Hmm. Anyway, these are their peers. Uh, main stage. They were on the second stage, which apparently was made up to look like a boxing ring, which I love. Uh, but before they played Tum Thumping, they gathered in the center of this stage and sang an acapella anti-fascist ballad. Uh, talking to the Daily Beast, Dunstan Bruce said, We were always trying to subvert the mainstream, and it was difficult. It was hard, but we had a lot of fun trying. I think that's all you can do, really. I think you just have to let the message be, at least we tried. At least we tried to do something. Whether we were successful or not, I'm not the one to judge us. But I think my measure is at least we tried to do something. That's my measure for this podcast. <laughs> something. Literally anything. Uh, the band never really broke their stride. I mean, obviously they gave away a lot of this money and never had another hit on the order, but they kept releasing records, a uh, documentary. They rebranded as an acoustic act when half their members... Uh, basically, the, having as many members as they did stopped being financially viable. Uh, Jude Abbott, Buff Whaley, Lou Watts, and the guy who engineered this record, Neil Ferguson, that was the new stripped-down version of the group. True to form, uh, they lodged an official complaint and threatened to take legal action with the UK Independence Party in 2011 when leader Nigel Farage arrived on stage at a conference to the strains of tub-thumping. They threatened to sue him for that. Uh, Nutter became a screenwriter for Jimmy McGovern's acclaimed drama series, The Street. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Dunstan Bruce has his own production company. And Danbert No Bacon, <laughs> living in Washington State, uh, releases solo work. And as we mentioned earlier, the band broke up in 2012. They wrote on their site, which is still live. I believe it is still the landing page on their site. We felt we got to a point where what we did as a band, and specifically... The writing, recording, touring cycle wasn't doing justice to what Chumbawamba set out to do in the first place. We were always as much about ideas as music, and that meant doing more than writing, recording, and touring songs. It meant trying to be relevant and active and up-to-date while trying to avoid the dreaded rut of routine or repetition. Being up-to-date meant giving plenty of time and energy to the band, constantly, for those 30 years, a constancy we plainly couldn't keep up in the end. Following their final shows, they posted a message to their website that read, That's it then. It's the end. With neither a whimper, <laughs> a bang, or a reunion. <laughs> I just, God love them. What a, what a succinct statement. Uh, Alice Nutter, in that AV Club interview, she had a great quote. Um... We were a gigging band before Tub Thumping. We had an underground audience. I found America strange going from radical politics to finding myself at radio stations at 7 in the morning. You've got to be polite. I met a lot of DJs with ponytails. <laughs> I enjoyed the surreal novelty of it, but I thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this. I'm not talking about being in a band. I'm talking about having a taste of fame. I didn't really like it. 
Uh, in that Guardian interview, Boff Whaley said, I still really like tub thumping. I don't feel embarrassed by it at all. I know some bands who hate their songs being popular, but I just think, get off your high horse. The whole point of art is to have an audience. Meanwhile, in 2011, the readers of Rolling Stone voted Tub Thumping the fifth worst song of the 90s. Oh, But the numbers don't lie. The song has 145 million listens on Spotify alone, and it actively garners fervent comments on the official YouTube listing. And during the pandemic, the song became an anthem for the historically working class city of Leeds, which is yes. adorable. I love that so much. Yeah. Um, you know, Bandcamp, God love them, Bandcamp Daily, the editorial wing of Bandcamp do some really tremendous features. Um, including by you sometimes. Sometimes, yes. But um, they had a whole interview with um, the band about their early anarchist stuff, all their pre-tub thumping stuff. Uh, and and <laughs> Jumbo Wumba drummer Danbert Norbacon, no bacon. Uh, he said to them, I am very proud of what we did the whole way through. We tried to push the envelope. We weren't always successful, but we always tried. And that's probably a defining characteristic of Chumbawamba. Whatever era or genre we tried, it always had a working class basis, which is a whole other story when we signed with the major labels in the mainstream. It didn't destroy us. You could accuse us of selling out, but we weren't bought up. The mainstream usually swallows people up and spits them out. I mean, it did spit us out, but we took that as a compliment, really. <laughs> Quote uh, machines all. I know, I know. God love them. Um, I'll never listen to this f***ing song in my life ever again, but um, I hope I've been able to impress upon... I worked on you. I hope I've been able to yes, impress upon our, upon our listeners that this band is more than a one-hit wonder. This is more than an annoying song. Is a bizarre footnote. Did I say this at the top of the episode? Did I compare them to David Lynch? No, that's a new one. Well, in the Eraserhead episode, and I was talking about this a lot, I said I don't think I, I have a hard I'd be hard pressed to think of someone who is genuinely on the who went from the avant-garde to the mainstream in quite the same way that David Lynch did. Twenty-five years from Eraserhead to getting an Oscar nom for Mulholland. I would be hard pressed to think of another band other than maybe Rage Against the Machine, who smuggled this much subversive stuff into the American mainstream. And Rage Against the Machine, it was at least in there in their name. Chumbawamba is like, how many millions of people listen to this song and had no idea that they were listening to a band of anarchists who were then smuggling anti-cop, anti-corporate messages into their songs and dowsing a vice PM and ice water. It's great stuff. Uh, God love him. Once again, Chumbawamba didn't fail us. We failed Chumbawamba. <laughs> Folks, thank you for listening. Raise a pint to your local anarchists. <laughs> well, I've made a Jimmy Buffett fan out of you, and you've made a Chumbawamba fan out of me. So I can say that universe is in balance. Thank you for listening, everyone. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Eigel. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. 
For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.